Welcome to De Beautiful's Digital Book Tour. This podcast series is a way for authors to connect with readers throughout America, even though their tours have been canceled due to COVID-19. To discover more debut authors, please visit debeautiful.net and subscribe to the podcast feed where we have in-depth interviews with people like Chelsea Beaker, Brandon Taylor, and Emma Copley-Eisenberg. Today's guest was previously a senior editor at HuffPost and was a staff member at Penn American Center. Her work has been published in the History Channel, Time, Atlas Obscura, and many more publications. Her name is Jessica Pierce Rotundi. Her first book, What We Inherit, A Secret War and a Family Search for Answers, is part memoir, part historical exploration, and part travelogue. It's a really personal story about how she discovered her grandfather and mother were secretly trying to track down her missing uncle, who has been missing since the 1970s. The book takes the work that her grandfather and mother had been doing during their lives and turns it into this beautiful, very personal story about war and family and secrets. Hey, Jessica, how are you doing today? I'm okay, Adam. I wanted to thank you so much for having me on now. I feel like we're all, you know, kind of feeling a little bit isolated right now. So to be able to talk books with someone across the country feels like a really special thing right now. Thank you. Uh, Honestly, people have been asking me how I'm handling working from home and whatnot. It's This sounds awful, but it's like the best time of my life because I've been talking to so many more (laughs) authors and writers than ever before because I have the time to do it. No, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, I've been in New York for over 12 years now. When I first moved here when I was 21, I was going to these readings every night. I'd be at the Strand or I'd be in Dumbo at Powerhouse Arena. These readings were everything. And now, you know, with my book tour canceled, I'm actually back to where I was when I was in my 20s. I'm doing, you know, I'm listening to authors in Amsterdam and Australia speak about their books. And there's this sense that the distance doesn't matter anymore. We're still finding ways to come together. And I feel, yeah, kind of a renewed sense of connection with all of these online events that are popping up. Yeah, it is really exciting just to be able to see, you know, whatever author on Instagram live just going through their bookshelf. And I'm like, this is so relaxing. Yeah, and it's intimate, too, because you can actually see the bookshelves, right? There's this kind of voyeuristic sense that we're actually walking into these writers' homes in a way that, you know, reading their books kind of feels that, that too. It's, it feels much more personal and direct in some ways. Although I do miss the book signing part. That is the worst. Yes, that, I do miss book signings. Yeah, and hopefully hopefully we can somehow fix, fix that digitally. I don't know. There, that's the one problem with, like, Zoom readings is you don't get that that nice signature on that that uh, uh, front page. Your book, What We Inherit, A Secret War and a Family Search for Answers, comes out April 21st. Tell readers uh, what it's about. Sure. So it's my very first book. I've been working on it for 10 years. Um, And it's the story of my family's 36-year search to bring my missing uncle home from the war in Laos. So it kind of started in the wake of my mother's death. I uncovered declassified CIA documents and letters and maps in my childhood home that pointed me to this family secret. Uh, And that was my Uncle Jack, who disappeared when his plane was shot down over Laos on March 29th, 1972. And the weird thing was, it wasn't the first time my family had experienced a plane crash. It eerily echoed one my grandfather survived in World War II uh, when he jumped out of a burning B-17 
and was a prisoner of war um, of the Nazis for three years in Stalag 17. So, you know, I think about him a lot now, especially when we're all kind of quarantined and, you know, not knowing when that imprisonment would begin or end. But he did come home, raised a family in small town Pennsylvania and sent his son into the Air Force. Um, Unfortunately, it was during Vietnam. And that's when we lost Jack. So my grandfather grew convinced that the government he fought for was lying to him about his son. So he went to Southeast Asia himself in search of answers. And 40 years after my grandfather's trip, I followed in his footsteps to Laos, where I found answers to the questions that had haunted my family for four decades. And a lot more about the secret war that left Laos the most heavily bombed country in the world. So what we inherit really at its core is a story about a father's refusal to be silenced and a daughter's quest to rediscover her voice in the wake of loss. And there's so much I want to unpack about this book. But first, I want to give readers the chance to listen to you read from your book. What what will you be reading for us today? Sure. Since we're all in quarantine, I thought I'd read a passage that takes us far away uh, to a scene actually in Laos. So it's toward the end of the book. I'm in the jungle in a place completely off limits to foreigners. I'm not supposed to be there. And I'm trying to find my Uncle Jack's crash site from 1972. So I'm with my close friend, Liz, who covered me around the world on this trip. She was so, so incredible. And then my guide, Mr. Pei, who does not trust me and really does not want to go on this mountain with me. So here we are in Laos. And let's start. The sun rises over the rice fields. And from the van window, Liz and I can see the red roads and green rice paddies blurring toward the mist fleeing the mountains. Liz tries to manage my expectations. Even if the smaller roads are passable, the likelihood of finding a crash site beyond them is slim. We have no idea if we will be sent back from the park's border by police or worse. Mr. Pei has instructed us to say, tourist, tourist, and smile if we are stopped. But even if we do manage to make it through, we have no idea if there are unexploded bombs or impenetrable jungle blocking our way. The highways here require Herculean navigation, never mind the spidery network of roads crawling up the mountain. I brace myself for the first of the bridges. A calm pervades the van as we clatter our way over it. Easy. The scary part is up ahead. The van slows and I peer out the window. We've come to the police checkpoint guarding the perimeter of the park. We slipped by easily enough last night, but daytime is a different story, Mr. Pei has warned us. I suck in my breath and scrunch down in the seat. The checkpoint is eerily quiet, the wraparound porch bare. A sleeping mutt lies just inside the open doorway. He doesn't even raise his head as we pass. I wait until I can no longer see the building in the rearview mirror to exhale. The road up the mountain becomes a green tunnel. Every few hundred feet, the trees open up to reveal blue sky and a sheer drop to the valley below. The effect is dizzying. We take a left just after the clearing from the previous night, and the van rattles down an even thinner red clay ribbon of road. The van lurches, then stops. No further, Mr. Pace says. What? Why? I ask. The road is too bad. We can't pass. Our driver begins to turn around. As the van slows in reverse, I slide the door open and jump out. Wait, I yell. Get back in the van, Mr. Pace says. Before me is a waterfall of mud, 
dropping down steeply to the rutted, grooved remains of a road. I have no idea how I'm going to get down it, but I'm sure as hell not getting back in that vehicle and driving away. I'm walking, Mr. Pay, I announce. You can stay here if you'd like. I slam the van door a little too loudly, and it reverberates out into the jungle around me, trees barely held back by the red clay trail. I adjust the weight of my backpack. I have enough water to last a few hours. If the terrain remains relatively steady, I can make it. You can't walk into the jungle alone, my guide says. You don't know this place. Watch me, I think. I start heading for the point where the road dips from view. The police will find you. A second van door slams as Liz comes to stand beside me. I'm walking too. No, no, American girls cannot be alone in the national park. I hear Mr. Pay's heavy breathing, a muttered phrase in loud that sounds a lot like fuck, a third door sliding open. He comes around the van and stands before Liz and me, blocking the way. If you go, I go with you, he says. I look up and down his five foot one frame in his flip flops, dress pants, and semi-tucked dress shirt. Mr. Pay won't last an hour. How far, he asks, pointing at the jungle ahead. I think of the nearly 40-year-old map in my pocket, of the grieving girl of the past four years who could barely navigate her own life, let alone a map, of the nine miles that stretch from where I'm standing now up into the mountain. I lie and say three kilometers. You have 20 minutes, Mr. Pace says. Then we leave. Liz and I look at each other. We'll just have to walk fast then, won't we? She whispers. We move almost sideways down the hill to keep from falling face first. Loose clumps of red dirt tumble down with each step and I try to still my heart's pounding by focusing on the dried ripples of mud beneath my feet. Behind us, the sound of Mr. Pay swearing goes fainter. On flat ground and already well ahead of Mr. Pay, Liz and I form a plan. I'll talk to him. You just walk as fast as you can, she says. She hands me the satellite phone, the black digits on the screen showing me just how far away I am from home and just how close I am to the coordinates of the last known place my uncle was seen alive. I think of mom marching up to the Lao embassy in 1975 in search of her brother, the road I now stand on marked off in the map in her purse. Liz's footsteps slow behind me as I pick up my pace each footstep matching the thudding of my heart. Jack, Jack, Jack. Thank you. Thank you so much, because this book is so so intimate, obviously. It's about, like, pieces of your family that have, that were a secret for a very long time. Um, I want to start with with your Uncle Jack and how much you knew about him growing up. Sure. I knew exactly two things about Jack, that he was in the Air Force, just like my grandfather, and that he never came home. I'd seen one photo of him. He had the same blue eyes and the same glasses as my grandfather had. But it always kind of interested me because my grandfather growing up was a World War II hero, right? He was a veteran. Uh, He was in Stalag 17. He marched in every Memorial Day parade. There was flags all over the house. But there was such complete silence around his firstborn son and namesake. So that was really one of the driving forces between uh, behind me wanting to really explore what happened to Jack and my family. 
and why we don't talk about him. Mm-hmm. And and you mentioned your your grandfather. He was basically re- like doing your job of this book before you wrote the book. He was the one who was trying to find so much about Jack. So he never talked about that to you or anyone really growing up? Never. I mean, we talked about World War II all the time. I would sit on his knee and he'd tell me all the war stories. Uh, I even recorded him for a seventh grade project I did on, you know, what'd you do in the war, Grandpa? But no, it wasn't until my mother's death that I found boxes and boxes of these documents that had my grandfather's face plastered on them. And they really covered his four-decade search to bring his son home. He retired from the state police in Pennsylvania early to devote the rest of his life to looking for his son and uh, died actually believing his son still lived. He never, ever gave up hope that he'd come home. Uh, There was this incredible moment uh, when he was about to go to Laos when he told a local paper, you know, I have faith that my son will have the same experience I did in World War II. And I think having survived a plane crash, having lived three years in a camp when his family thought he was dead, coming back from the dead, I really think he thought his son could do it too. And that kept him going all those years. One thing I really like about your book is how it feels like I'm there with you every step of the way. You really draw out these like emotional, very personal moments. And I want to cover some of those. What was it like when you opened that box and just discovered an uncle who you never really knew just laid out there in front of you? Yeah, I mean, my mom had died really hours earlier. I was in the hospice with her holding her hand and I'm thinking about a lot of people now who are losing family members and can't be in the room, and my heart goes out to so many of them. But, you know, I, I was wild with grief, and I really was looking for a last message from mom. Uh, we talked on the phone every single night about everything from, like, roasting chicken to to boyfriends to books. Books is really our core language together, and I found nothing about her illness. She never talked about her own death or her own illness with me. That was another off-limits topic in my family. But what I found instead was who she was when she was my age. Jack disappeared at the same age I lost her. And through finding those letters, I really spent the next decade understanding who she was at 21 and kind of getting to meet her there. So it wasn't the message I was looking for, but it ended up being the message I think I needed to hear from them. Yeah, it's, it's just, I can't imagine, you know, losing uh, your mother and then, uncovering something so life-changing um when did you decide to make this a decade of your life's work when like when did you earnestly think i'm going to research this look for answers and then write a book yeah so at first it was very much a personal mission i think everyone grieves differently my form of grieving is to just bury myself in a new project and just keep going. And it, it really felt like connecting with my grandfather again, too. I mean, selfishly, for this project, I got to call up CIA officers and veterans who knew my grandpa and knew my uncle and getting to talk about them again. It re- really was a way of, I think, resurrecting them for me at first. But then a couple of years later, I found something else from mom. Uh, we were about to move. It was right before Christmas. And I found this manuscript she had written when she was... I think I might have been six years old at the time. It was early, early 90s. And it was a manuscript she sent out to one publisher. She had the rejection letter encased right next to it and never sent it out again. And that's the moment I was like, you know what? I'm going to write about this. I'm going to get my mom published. I think it really showed me 
she had wanted to become a writer. I knew she loved reading. I didn't know she was a writer. And, you know, I was an editor at the Huffington Post at the time. Every single day I'd go into work and tell other women's stories about all stages of their life. But I realized this was my family's story and one I absolutely had to tell. And then shifting away from the book ever so slightly, just because you brought up you were an editor at the Huffington Post, you you know have been published in a variety of different publications. And I want to dive into just you as a writer as well. Before this personal project, what drew you to writing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, even as a little girl, I would, you know, write things in crayon. They'd go up on the fridge. I was always kind of telling stories, making up stories. Um, and, you know, when I was in high school, I got kind of shy. I became 5'9 when I was 12. So I was freakishly tall. And all I wanted to do was disappear. So I would just constantly read. And I grew up kind of in the middle of nowhere, West Newbury, Massachusetts. It's an hour north of Boston. There was 13 acres of woods behind the house. And it was kind of a, a lonely time in my life. And I, books took me to so many places before I could ever afford or imagine myself going there. So when I moved to New York City to work in book publishing, uh, getting closer to these other authors that were, you know, achieving incredible things, it really made me think that I could not only dream of doing it, but actually do it. And losing mom was, was kind of galvanizing too. The last time she got to visit me in New York, I just started working at Macmillan um, at St. Martin's Press. I had a room of my own in the Flatiron building to fill with books. And, you know, my, my name was on the door and she just thought it was the coolest thing. And as I said before, you know, books were always our love language. When she was sick, I would send her boxes and boxes of books home. And now as a writer, I had this incredible opportunity to tell not just a story that was important to her, but I think a story that's important globally. I mean, the war is called the secret war in America. But when I went to Laos, there are entire museums dedicated to what happened there. There are bomb craters in people's front yards and I, I just can't wait for people to finally, I mean, m- many people know about it, been writing about it for years, but I hope with this book, through the personal angle, it can reach an even wider audience. For those who don't know about this secret war, in like a brief Wikipedia tweet of what it is, what is the, the war in Laos? Sure. So during the Vietnam War, um, the Viet Cong were transporting supplies and troops through the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which ran through not only Vietnam, but Laos and Cambodia. And as a way to, according to the government, um, avoid um, the loss of American life, Eisenhower started secretly bombing uh, strategic sites throughout Laos, an officially neutral country during the war. And by war's end, it was the most heavily bombed country in the war. I mean, it's bombed more heavily than both Japan and Germany were combined during World War II. Yeah, I just... It's really, really wild. The, the past two days, I, I had the chance, I'm talking to you now, and then I previously talked to uh, Fook Tran, who is uh, wrote a memoir about his, his family coming over from Vietnam, from Saigon to rural Pennsylvania. And I feel like, I, I feel like things in life, this sounds cheesy, but like th- things in life sync up. They don't, I don't know if they happen for a reason, but they sync up. And like I spent the last two days really, and the past week, like learning a lot about this part of the world and it's just I think your book especially just opens up so much that I didn't know and you're right maybe like because of how America treats this particular war completely and I I love what you said about worlds kind of coming together and things happening at certain times I had a very similar experience 
um, when I was writing the book, I was in my book club uh, talking a little bit about the project. And someone said, oh, my dad was in Laos in the 70s. And I asked her, was, was your dad CIA? And she's like, how did you know that? Uh, so he ended up being one of my biggest sources in the book. I've been trying for eight years to break into the CIA and, and get someone on the record. And he was amazing. He was in Vincennes when it fell. He, you know, described parties at night where Russians and Chinese were just throwing back whiskey and then the next day trying to kill one another. Uh, it was just absolutely wild. And even another experience, uh, one of my major sources that I adored was uh, Samtama Tami Fisyavang. He uh, excavates crash sites throughout Southeast Asia looking for American remains. And I thought we were going to talk about just that. But when I got him on the phone, I learned he, too, had a very personal connection to the war. Uh, when he was 13, his father was in the Lao Air Force um, and sent to re-education camp for 12 years. So Tommy escaped with his brother to Thailand then to California where he grew up and he thought, you know, I'm never going to see Laos again. And he's since been back over 100 times uh, working in the Air Force, just like his father and helping other families uh, reunify. So it was just incredible, all of the families that were affected by this. And much like my own, doesn't matter what side you were on, there's a lot of secrets in war, whether because it's painful or because your government is censoring it, which is still the case in Laos. And I feel very lucky to have connected with these humans uh, when I did. When writing, when actually writing the book, did you try to approach it from a distance or did you just allow yourself to go full on personal memoir, even during like the historical parts of the book? Sure. It's a great question. And it's something I, I really thought about a great deal. When I first started this, I was like, I'm a journalist. I write for the History Channel and I'm going to be professional and keep it strictly about this war. But you know, when it's so tied to my family, there's no way I can't make it personal. And I had that realization. There was this kind of Newton's apple moment where I was in bed, um, where I often worked in the mornings before working a full-time job and going through some of uh, my grandfather's and mother's papers and something slipped out onto my lap. And it was actually Jack's dog tag, which I did not know we had. And I thought about it. This was an object that touched Jack. It's an object my grandfather, my mother held. And I felt so connected to them in that moment. And that's when I realized this book has to be personal. What makes history to me personal, history important to me rather, is when it becomes personal. And I knew that I wanted to recreate that sense of power for the reader in this book. So as you saw um, in the book itself, there are actually photographs and documents included throughout it. You'll see uh, my grandfather's World War II uh, prisoner card. You'll see a, a declassified CIA document covered in black bars. I wanted to recreate a sense of mystery for the reader to really understand the suspense my family was in for years and also to bring the war more home. Yeah, it's just, I, I was as you were talking, I'm flipping through and saw your mother's passport, Jack's uh, high school photo, and it's just, I think I said it earlier, but I really felt like I was with you and your friend and your guide going through. Oh. Like, I, I felt there, and it's just... Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, like, I just, uh, I, I knew, like, you have that journalistic background, and I was like, and I, I know how personal the book is, but I just want to know that struggle that, if there was that struggle for you and those dog tags, wow, like, just to even, like, to surprise touch them, basically. Very much so. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've rewritten this book so many times. I think when we first went out with it, it was, I think, 2016 or 2015. And, um, we had meetings with all the major publishers and a lot of them said, well, 
you know, books about war by women don't really sell, or you can't really have a memoir and a nonfiction book about a war that's investigated at once. It's like, how do we pitch this? And uh, I'm very lucky that my agent, Allison Hunter at Jane Cloud and Nesbitt, never gave up hope on this book. And we were so lucky to come to Unnamed Press and Olivia Taylor Smith. They do really, really creative work, especially by more underrepresented groups. Uh, and I, she believed in the story from day one and she saw it as a strength, not a weakness. And the coolest moment in this whole process for me, uh, we sent the book kind of in a Hail Mary moment to Ron Chernow, the author of Alexander Hamilton. And the blurb that's now on the front of the book um, really speaks to this kind of hybrid that we tried to create. He said, it's an amalgam of memoir, travelogue, and investigative report. And that's, that's what this is. And that's what I wanted it to be. And I was, it's so cool to finally have it out there and have people be able to experience these disparate genres um, to tell this story. And a lot of what we covered today was like the surface of how, how, how much this book goes into. So I, I just want to like remind if people, like people that are listening, if what we talked about today interests you, this book will just grip you from the first page and just take people take people away. It was it's such a beautiful and quick read, and I mean that in the best way. Like I just wanted to get done with it, so I knew everything that happened. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I like to wrap up with the uh, writers giving suggestions for what they're reading or what interests them in general. Are there any books? I know before we started recording, you mentioned you are stuck at your in-laws because you went on a trip and then everything shut down. But have you had a chance to read? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I was here in the first weekend in March for just a long weekend, I thought, with my in-laws. And I've been here ever since. I'm on, you know, my second pair of underwear. It's all I have. Uh, I'm in the same pair of sweatpants. But I was lucky that he had a sister who's a big reader, too. So I've kind of been exploring the classics, what was left over in the house. Uh, there's a beautifully... A worn copy of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. So I'm kind of rediscovering that. And I'm trying to do Crime and Punishment. It's feeling a little heavy right now and kind of punishing. But um, yeah, I'm very excited that bookshop.org is still shipping books right now in the middle of all this crisis. They've been incredible. If you haven't checked them out, please do. Um, And I just ordered Mary South's new book, and I'm very excited to read her collection of short stories. It's about technology um, and how it kind of impacts human relationships. And I know as we use more technology to connect with one another, it just feels super timely. Yeah, I loved Mary South's uh, story collection. It, it, and what's funny is I think 80% of the people I've talked to during this like podcast book tour has brought that book up. Every, everyone that reads it loves it. Yeah, she's, she's such an incredible writer and also an advocate for writers. She started this group for a lot of us who are publishing in the time of Corona. And it's been so nice to open your email in the morning and just talk to people going through the same thing. I think we all know that, uh, you know, there are people on the front lines in the medical world that are going through such worse things. A canceled tour is not the end of the world. But I also think of my grandfather in World War II, there was a story he always used to tell me. Um, He's a very strict curfew, he had very little to do, but he was able to smuggle in one book. It was a small prayer book. And it ended up being the book he would read to every night to his fellow prisoners. And my mom would later take with her to chemo sessions. It's the one thing uh, she gave me before she died. And I just think of how she read that book to feel connected to her father and the power of books to make us feel less alone, to take us out of our bodies, to take us out of um, the four walls that we're kind of looking at, especially now. And I hope that my book does that and all the other books we've been talking about and you've been featuring on your podcast can 
be a little bit of hope for people who are maybe not feeling their strongest right now. And that's that's what I hope. I I think books in this modern age when there's 25 streaming services and over 100 shows you could watch at any given time, the general public and their relationship with books is, is there's a, there's a divide there now and I think now books are more comforting now than ever and I'm even having a chance to read books that I never would be able to just because I like working from home I could sneak a few chapters in between emails and it's it's a really lovely time in that sense even though the world around us might be falling apart very much so and I'm curious to see the books that will come out of this too and there's a lot of writers with time to write now, I'm not sure if they feel well enough to write, but um, I'm also curious how books set in the present day, how they will or will not address this virus and how society is changing. So I think we have a lot of um, new worlds to explore going mm-hmm. forward. As we look forward to how writers will cover this time period in our life, I can guarantee you if you're looking for an escape and something to take you back, what we inherit is the book that you should definitely check out. I mentioned throughout this interview, I, it felt cozy, even though it's dealing with such traumatic secrets. I, I felt transported with Jessica's writing. So thank you for her to, to share all of that with us today. You can find her on the web at jessicapiercerotundi.com and on Twitter and Instagram, just at Jessica Rotundi. I'll link those in the show notes. As always, you can find us at daybeautiful, daybeautiful.net. Please subscribe to the podcast. I hope everyone's staying safe out there. We're flattening the curve. We just need to hunker down. Be safe. Until next time.